Welcome to MLR Kickoff, episode 43, with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Hey folks, welcome to the show. A little flash and bang at the start of the show too as we look forward to 2020 and season of Major League Rugby kicking off. Dan Power with you alongside Pete Steinberg. And Pete, a big show in store as we take a look at Houston, the Sabercats year in 2019 and what is ahead for them as you get a chance to catch up with their new president, JT Onyet. And we'll also take a look at MLR's involvement in the last game before the World Cup, USA-Canada, this weekend. But first, I welcome Pete Steinberg to the show. Pete, how are you, my friend? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. But Dan, as I was telling you and Aaron, my my wonderful daughter who's coming up to three is going through her um, a little sleep regression where she likes to wake up three times in um, the middle of the night. So uh, we have a late um, recording here, but uh, um, I'm hoping to stay awake for all of it. Well, that actually uh, that actually parlays quite nicely into the Sabercats because they had a little bit of a sleep issue in 2019. They slept for about two-thirds of the season before waking up from their slumber and going on a four-match winning streak to end the year on a high note. Let's just talk about their 2019 quickly. This talented roster that we've always talked about under Justin Fitzpatrick, they spluttered through the opening you know, stages of 2019. The Sabercats' ownership decided time for a change and said goodbye to Justin Fitzpatrick. Paul Emmerich takes over for the back end of the year. He loses his first game in New York, but then that four-game winning streak, Pete. Are the Sabercats uh, on the cusp of a turnaround in 2020? uh, uh, The the Sabercats must have been one of the most frustrating teams to, to watch because they had so many elements that you think would make them a um a really competitive team. I mean, you know, I, I have some of the, um, you know, it, there were some interesting things about it. So first of all, very solid set piece. Um, one of the best scrums, Paul Mullen at tight head, um, you know, prob- you know, up there with the um, Metchers and the Paddy Ryans in terms of his technical ability. But, you know, Justin Fitzpatrick definitely knows how to coach the scrum and their scrum um, was the number one team in um in turnovers for the opposition scrum so extremely solid their line out was number three in the league in um line out percentage so they had a lot of ball right so you say okay they, they started off with a lot of ball and then you look at the team stats and you say wow this is a really solid team right in terms of defense so they are um the number two team in dominant tackles with um, pato tool leading the league with 26 and um, 
uh, Luke Beauchamp, um, number seven in the league with 19. They, um, and then number two in tackle percentage. So you look at that and you say, wow, a very solid set piece, a very good um, uh, defense. What's going on here? And then you look and you say, last in ball carries. And then you say, okay, so they're last in ball carries. Um, and you say, um, last in, in rucks. And you look and you realize that they, after the San Diego Legion, they're the number two team in the league for kicking the ball away. And the number two kicker in the league is Connor Murphy. Okay, their scrum half. They had, I think, a um, potentially, what I would describe as probably um, um, a, a traditional attack, like we would talk about it during the season, Dan. Their forwards would come around the corner. They would set something up. Connor Murphy would do a box kick. They tried to lead. Like they tried to play territory, sort of, you know, the way South South Africa, um, you know, used to play in the mid two thousands, like very much a Jake White kind of approach. And but they took away everything they had in the back line, you know, with the um, Kalinasals and the Vithis um, and the Pangolinians. They they just had so many good. Back, back players but they didn't use it in their attack and and I you know as, as a former scrum half I think I was pretty hard on Connor Murphy throughout the year for playing slowly but as soon as they had their change in coaching Connor Murphy looked like a much better scrum half so to me they had the pieces in 2019 but I think their attacking approach is what really hurt them you know Major League Rugby is really uh, you know, th- there's a lot of points that are scored. You have to be very, very good in transition if you're going to play the game that they play, which is, you know, lose the ball or kick the ball away, play territory, and then lead with a defense. And that's what San Diego was very good at. They were very good at, um, at in, in that transition and scoring off that transition, and Houston just weren't. So I think it was all about the attacking strategy. And when Paul Emmerich came in and he said, hey, you know, you know what we're going to do is we're going to move it wide early. We're going to get it into our outside backs early and look what a different team they were. Yeah, they were. You add into the mix there, Santiago Arada as well. Uh, maybe something got lost in translation at the game plan because he just did what he well, wanted and well, it was magical when he did it. They looked so much better with the uh, young Uruguayan absolutely, scrum half but, when he you know, played. He was well. injured a lot of the season and, and um, you know, for whatever reason – uh, you know, Connor Murphy wasn't able to express himself when you know under the approach that Justin Fitzpatrick had. It'll be interesting. They do have a new head coach in Paul Healy, a well-traveled coach with a lot of international experience, a lot of Tier Two and Tier Three nation experience, but also spent some time at the Queensland Reds down there as well. And if he can keep that foundation that you talked about, Pete, uh, off the front row, in particular Mullen, but also uh, Pat O'Toole, who I thought was very good, Charles Connolly, Jamie Diva, and uh, big Matteo Sanguinetti. Those guys were the pretty much the pillars up front that were that set piece. And I think they can build some you know, solid pieces around that. I think Sam Windsor is still under contract. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, but that fly, the fly half uh, will be another big part and hopefully – him and Arada will get a little bit more time together. Next yeah, I mean, year. you know, I, I think we're we're you know, I don't want to get into the preview too much, right? Um, but I think that you know, I had I think that they had the pieces this year, but I also feel like you know, 
Major League Rugby, there's there's um, uh, more teams coming in. So you've got the expansion teams. There are more teams looking for talent. We're going to see some of these players that we thought did really well for these teams not playing for the teams next year. It's going to be there's going to be some transitions. So for teams like Houston, it's about which of those teams do you know they had the the um, expansion draft. They were able to protect 15 players. Which of those 15 players do you protect? Um, and then how do you fill the holes of the players that leave? Yeah, I mean that would be the job of. Uh another new face down at the Houston Sabercats. That is JT Onyet. And uh, Pete, you had a chance to catch up. Now, is he the president, CEO, the, the director of yeah, rugby, so, um, all of the I think above? He's, What's his uh, official um, title, Pete? I think he's officially the president, but he's pretty clear. I mean, really interesting interview, as, as, as you'll hear, Dan, but he's pretty clear that he's the non-rugby guy, um, and, and he's there with um, a baseball background, um, and you know brings the sports management side of it so uh, um, some interesting discussions as we talked about you know how you bring some of that expertise to the major league rugby well enough from us let's throw it down to houston and jt on yet the president of the houston Sabercats, who sat down with our very own pete steinberg well jt thank you so much for joining us on major league rugby kickoff thanks for having me um, well, you know, it's going to be interesting because I, I think um, you're one of the few people that we've had on our podcast that isn't a rugby person. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you have now found yourself um, with the Sabercats as part of Major League Rugby? Yeah, so I'm quickly becoming a rugby person, but you're right. You know, in, in my background, there is no rugby. I didn't play. Uh, you know, I've never worked in it, quite frankly. Haven't really watched much rugby before this opportunity came up, but uh, right out of college, I knew that sports was what I wanted to do, and particularly baseball uh, was what I wanted. I always had a passion for baseball growing up and played it until I got hurt in high school, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go to the baseball winter meetings in 2008 when they were in Las Vegas, and minor league baseball does a job fair during that time. Um, and it's, you know, 300, 400 newly college graduates uh, looking for mainly internships in minor league baseball. And I sat there for three days, applied for almost every job that was off or, you know, that was open. Um, I got one interview. Luckily for me, it was an hour away from my house. Uh, <laughs> like Elsinore, California. And uh, it was a job in the ticket office as a ticket operations intern. And uh, the Lake Elsinore Storm, we were a, a Padres minor league affiliate. And the ownership and management group there did a great job of letting you be what you wanted to be and grow. And so it wasn't just ticket operations that I did. I ended up you know, writing for our game day program, uh, learning a lot about the promotions of baseball, you know, how you get people out to a minor league game. And I was there for five years, uh, not as an intern. After my first year, I became, you know, in charge of the ticket office and got more responsibility as it went on and became the assistant general manager, uh, which is not what people think when they hear general manager, assistant general manager. We had nothing to do with the baseball decisions. It was just running the business. And then I moved to Sugarland, 
uh, in the Houston area to work for a team called the Sugarland Skeeters, which is an independent minor league baseball team. I was the assistant GM there for a few years, moved on uh, to the Texas Air Hogs, another baseball team in the Dallas area. And I was the president and general manager there. And then this came up, you know, and it was a, a great opportunity for me to get my wife back to where she was from in Houston um, to try something different and to really kind of internally prove that, you know, sports are sports and, and balls are balls. And that if I can do it uh, in baseball for so many years and kind of have the formula down, I think we could take that formula across sports and change it a little bit, but, you know, see how it works in other sports. Well, that's great. I mean, I think you've got a great background. There's certainly um, a move within Major League Rugby to bring in more sports professionals and that the requirements really should be much more, you know, outside of the on the field stuff should be much more about your sports experience. So talk, can you talk a little bit about as someone from the outside who had this opportunity, like how you looked at Major League Rugby as a um a, as a business um how you looked at the saber cats it would be i think it would be interesting for um the listeners to hear how someone as a sports professional you know who maybe hasn't necessarily drunk the rugby kool-aid that we've all drunk about major league rugby sees the sport and the league yeah you know it's definitely a growing league and uh first couple of years of all leagues you know you you never really know uh, until you know and uh you know, so in making the decision to come here, it definitely, it was a harder decision than just switching to a different baseball league. Uh, you know, new leagues start and fail. But I, I in speaking with ownership here, uh, I could really tell that everyone is really committed to making Major League Rugby work. And it seems like there's the good, uh, the groundwork has been laid and the foundation has been laid. And now we have a chance in year three coming up to really move forward, uh, specifically for the Sabercats. You know, Aviva Stadium had some delays and uh, finally opened towards the end of last season. So we were kind of a traveling team for the first two years. Now we have a home that's beautiful, you know, seats 4,000 people. And I'm looking at the grass right now. It, you know, it looks perfect. Uh, you know, we can... We can do a lot of things here at the stadium, rugby being, you know, the main uh, driver for everything that we do. But, you know, I think there's real opportunity in Major League Rugby to carve out its own uh, spot in professional sports in America. Well, that's great. I mean, I, as we've as we've looked at the first two years of Major League Rugby, there's been a you know significant improvement with the on the field product. Um, but as we look around the teams, you know, with a couple of, ex of exceptions, getting fans out to the games has been a challenge. And, and, you know, the first time I started being involved with early on when I was involved with Major League Rugby, I had a conversation with Dean Howes and, you know, he started, I think, what's become a bit of a mantra um, with, for Major League Rugby, which is we cannot survive if we just attract rugby fans there just aren't enough rugby fans so can you talk a little bit about how you come in to a niche sport so it's not baseball 
um, you know, which everyone knows baseball and there's a, you know, a group of people that are baseball fans, what the Sabercats are going to do to attract the non-rugby person to get them out to Aviva Stadium. Yeah, so that's a, a very good point. And it's something that I think, honestly, every team and league struggles with, you know, minus uh, the top teams in every league. Uh, you know, it's hard to get fans to come out to games, especially now when there's so much competition, not only in sports, but, you know, everyone's got a smartphone that they can do a lot with and uh, a couch at home and Netflix on TV that, you know, that's our biggest competition. Uh, but, you know, in saying that Dean is right, that, you know, we can't survive just on rugby fans. And fortunately for me uh, and the Sabercats, my background minor league baseball, you can't depend on anything. You know, you don't know what players you're going to have every year. Uh, the last two minor league teams I've worked with, uh, we've had a major league baseball team pretty much right down the street. And so while everyone does know baseball, they also know that if they want to see the best of the best, they can just go down the street and um, watch that. So we've always had to fight for every fan in minor league baseball. And that's the approach that I'm taking here with the Sabercats is, you know, we're going to get our rugby fans because they know this is top level rugby. Uh, this is what they love watching. Uh, but what kind of environment can we create so that the sports family that has never seen rugby wants to come out? And that's something different for everybody. Uh, you know, there's no one thing that we can get, but a lot of it goes to, you know, having fun promotions at the games, uh, making those individual memories for people that even if they're confused the entire 80 minutes of the rugby match, uh, you know, the kid got to go on the field at halftime and, and run around or play musical chairs, you know, during uh, the timeout, you know, uh, got to meet a player after the game and, and really have that personal interaction with the players. And I think that's something that we can do that the other major league sports, uh, specifically in Houston, you know, they want to, and they do it, but we can do it on a grander scale. And, you know, our players can have a lot more accessibility. Uh, people can get to them. We'll go out in the community and just teach people who we are and hey, you can have a great time at a Sabercats match, even if you're not sure what's going on, because you're going to have just a fun time with your family. And it's not sitting on the couch watching Netflix, creating zero memories. It's being at a game, interacting with each other. And hey, we've got some cold Carbach beer and that helps too. So can you talk a little bit about how media works? You know, there's been different teams, including the Sabercats, sort of try different approaches with their home games that weren't CBS games. You know, some put it on, you know, a local sports channel, some kind of, you know, did Facebook. Can you talk a little bit about how the local TV helps build the brand and helps bring people in and, and maybe a little bit about how social media has changed the way that a group like the Sabercats might communicate with both their current and potential fans? Yeah. So, you know, social media uh, does make it a lot easier in a lot of ways, uh, but you also have to fight through the noise. Uh, 
you know, everyone's got a social media. It's not just people that, you know, are businesses that want to spend money on it. You know, everyone and their mom and their, you know, their president has social media. And so, uh, it is a great way to get directly to the fans as long as the fans can find you and, and constantly see what you're doing. Um, you know, but our games being whether they're streamed on Facebook or on local TV, you know, giving more people access to our games if they can't make it out is always a good thing. And, you know, people, the great thing about being on local TV would be if you're just flipping through the channels and see it and it's a fast paced sport that might catch your attention. And now you become that rugby fan. Uh, you know, those are all benefits to us to get just the word out there. Really? You know, it's, we haven't decided exactly what we're going to do yet uh, for next year in terms of where our games will be that aren't the CBS matches, but whatever we do, it'll be the best case scenario to get most fans able to access our product. And, and I think one of the, one of the competitive advantages that rugby has in the sports landscape in the U S is sort of the, the um, accessibility of the players. Um, you know, I know I, I, uh, there was a sponsor for USA rugby that sponsored um, the Australian USA test a couple of years ago. And um, his clients were blown away that they could have dinner with the team afterwards, got to hang out with the players and, and, and got to meet them. Um, it, you know, how important is building the brand of, of Sabercat players? And, you know, how do you expect to leverage sort of their accessibility and being able to create that memory for the kid and the family? Yeah. And so this is something that's new to me um, because working in minor league baseball, you cannot promote the players. I mean, you can, but it's not beneficial because you never know. Um, You know, in my early years working in affiliated baseball, we were a Padres affiliate. And so the Padres decided who our players were when it was time for them to go up to double A or when they were going to get released. And then moving to independent baseball, Everyone's on one-year contracts with the goal to get back to the major leagues. And so you can't really promote the player too much. Now, moving here with the Sabercats, you're exactly right. It's all about that interaction with the players. And I think, you know, one of the coolest things that that we do that rugby does is that post-match dinner. And so what what we do because of our setup is fans can go after our game and first of all they can go shake players hands get autographs uh, down in the front row but then they can go hang out by our bar area you know it's still open still an environment the band is playing and the players are right there having their dinner typically come out to the bar before the dinner and also come back to it after and it's just cementing that relationship so that the kid, the family, even if they don't fully understand rugby, they know that, Hey, that's Sam Windsor, you know, and, and he was just playing on the field. He's a professional athlete and I get to know him and, you know, Sam and and other players too, you know, we send them out to the community so that they go to a kid's school and now the kid feels a a kinship towards that player and wants to come out and see him play. Uh, Something that you don't get in the other major league sports on a, on a big scale. So 
it's really big to create those relationships between the players and, uh, and our fans and also our staff and our fans just so they continue to have reasons to come back. And, and you know, Houston's got a, um, a very strong uh, rugby history, particularly with the U.S., some of the largest um, audiences that we've, you know, um, that we've had for games. We've sold out the um, MLS stadium down in Houston. There's a very large expat community as well as, you know, obviously a very large business hub. Um, you know, if you look at other sports, they'll tell you that, you know, to become a really profitable enterprise, you need to engage with business and you need to really create partnerships and sponsorship with business and you have corporate boxes and those sorts of things. You know, the stadium um, in Houston is absolutely beautiful, but it doesn't, if I remember my time there, it doesn't have a huge number of sort of boxes for corporation and, 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 um, those sorts of partnerships. Is that something that's planned? And, and, and what's the goal in terms of being able to leverage some of that expat community that are leaders in some of the local businesses? Yeah, so you're right. Um, corporate partnerships are huge for us. Um, and also that we don't have currently uh, really any skyboxes or suites. Um, what we do have is a couple of big hospitality tents that we can leverage for those corporate partners. And also, uh, you know, our, our signage and all that stuff. Uh, it is in future plans to possibly add more suites uh, or some suites on a, onto a second level. But right now, you know, we, we play with what we've got and we have a great season ticket base. Uh, large part of those are the expats, you know, that, that love rugby, that have been part of rugby clubs here for years and you know are happy to see professional rugby on a big scale uh with some staying power as well and you know we're going to do everything we can to to grow our corporate base in multiple ways so whether that's you know have a big company outing and before the game you guys get to play a you know flag rugby on the field right before our game starts or you know stay after the game and, and watch a movie on our big video board, you know, and during the whole game, food and drinks and all of that to really just do the employee uh, client entertainment that a lot of companies do. And, you know, the best strive to do a lot of, uh, but, you know, they're, they're invaluable to us, the corporate relationships that we have and that we continue to grow, uh, you know, starting with Aviva. And, and moving on down the line and, and we'll continue to add more corporate partners, both just in the hospitality and also the, the corporate partners with signage and other. So you've talked a little bit and, and about your sort of due diligence about looking at major, major league rugby as a sports professional. When you look at the league as a whole, so we'll take you a little bit out of the, uh, um, out of the Houston Sabercats. What are the, you know, the barriers that, you know, Major League Rugby has been successful. We're in our second year. Um, you know, it certainly looks like we're going to be around for a few years more. But what do you think are the challenges and, and barriers that would um, that might get in the way of cementing Major League Rugby in the American sports landscape? Yeah, so I think that in, in any business, uh, especially new sports leagues, the first couple of years are the hardest. And so all of those that, that founded this league that have been here working 
on the ground level um, since the beginning. You know, there's I have a lot of respect for everyone that's that's done that because it's not easy. And we see leagues, even in more mainstream American sports, fail. And you know, while I'm looking at this opportunity, the right. alliance of football fails. You know, halfway through their first season, and no one really saw that coming. Uh, but I think the biggest, you know, now that we're over the first couple of years hurdle, and hey, we're growing, we're continuing to grow as a league. Uh, the biggest hurdle is just to get to more people. You know, like we talked about earlier, it, it can't just be rugby fans. It has to be uh, sports fans that realize, hey, rugby's not that much different than what I watch. And, you know, and and I am one of them, but, you know, millennials, I, I think we're great for the attention span that our world and is getting. You know, you know when we're going to start. You know basically when we're going to end, and there's not much stoppage time during the game, and that comes from someone who's worked, you know, in a game that that gets beat up for the stoppage time that we have, you know, and that you never know when a baseball game is going to be over, which is a great thing, and and a lot of people love that. But I think as we move, you know, more to the the digital age and attention spans keep getting shorter and shorter. I think we have a real opportunity as a sport to say we're built for this. We're built for 2020 and beyond because we are fast paced. You know when it's going to end and there's a lot of action on the field. And it's just getting people to realize that, you know, getting them out here once for whatever reason, maybe it's because, you know, their business bought tickets and they want to check it out or it's dog day and they love their dog and they want to bring their dog with them, you know, or it's beat cancer night and they know someone that was affected. So they come out for that first time for whatever reason. And then they see, man, this is a great sport because that's what I felt the first time I watched, you know, uh, I'd already accepted the job the first time I came to a game, but I was like, you know, this is a sport that I can fully get behind and see. It's not much different than the sports I, that I know. I um, recently had a discussion really with someone with the Pittsburgh Steelers and um, who's in their sort of marketing and sales side, and he talked about um, their biggest challenge is, is the sort of data and digital transformation and how they engage with their, um, with their fans. So not just on social media, but how they know who their fans are, how they um, – you know, know when they come, you know, if they come back, how they track all that stuff. That's something that's very hard for anyone um, to kind of stand up, including a startup league and a startup, including startup teams. How are you sort of managing that man- you know, that database, that ticket sales? Are you building that in-house? Are you outsourcing it? Do you have partners that you're working with? How are you trying to, you know, because basically you're sort of building the ship as it sails. So like what are the approaches you're taking to some of the operations? Yeah. And it's a mixture of in-house and outsource. Um, You know, we've, we've got a great ticket sales team and marketing team that gets all the data we can from our ticket buyers. And then we use a a marketing agency that helps us build uh, kind of a lookalike audiences to say, all right, well, our typical, season ticket holder 
has these characteristics, how can we get to people that are like them? Um, you know, and it is all about data and, and how do we cut through the noise to make sure that, you know, we don't have the marketing budget that the NFL does or that major <laughs> league baseball does. Um, fortunately for me, our marketing budget's bigger than minor league baseball in a lot of cases, <laughs> but you know, we have to be smart about it. And so being smart about it, part of that is, Hey, how do we cut through that noise and get to the people that we need to get to? And it's all through that data. And we'll continue, like you said, we're building the ship as we go. And so we'll continue to kind of fine tune that as we get closer uh, to this season and, and move forward on the next season. And now that we have that well, stadium. JT, thank you so much you know, for taking to, the time to today. It's, it's really appreciated. Um, it's great to get some insight from a sports professional into both the league and the running of the team. Um, you know, having been to the stadium, it is absolutely beautiful. As you said, it's only one of two in the league where you own your own stadium and around the world. Um, it's pretty much, um, accepted in rugby that if you don't own your own, own stadium, then you can't be profitable. So that's a big step forward, um, for the league and for the Houston Sabercats. So good luck with your preparations for season three. And um, hopefully we'll meet on the sidelines sometime. There you go. JT Onyet, a man with a lot on his plate and a lot on his mind as he looks forward to 2020. And the Sabercats, well, they also have a new home that they christened this year that they'll be at permanently next year as well, Pete. But interesting conversation, interesting guy, and sounds like yeah, he's I mean, all I, in on you the know, This is a really – it'll be um, – I think this is actually the start. You've, you've already seen it in some places like San Diego where – um, it's really about people that bring business or sports man- management experience. I think, you know, the Sabercats have um, Aviva Stadium. That's a great asset for them. Uh, you know, it was interesting talking to him about data. And, you know, I was geeking out a little bit as a, as a business guy to kind of think a little bit about, about how you do that. But, you know, they're very focused, as I think every team is, which is like, how do we build relationships with non-rugby people and i think the interesting thing that jt talked about which you know i I hadn't thought about is that you know his experiences in minor league baseball and it's not that much different um you know trying to get people to come to the mate to the minor league um baseball game is pretty much like trying to get them to come to a major league rugby game and it's about getting that fan experience right and i loved what he said when he said it hey it's about really creating memories like you can't create memories when you're watching Netflix and you can't create memories when you watch it on TV. But if they do a good job with the Sabercats, like they'll create memories for that 10 year old kid that gets to meet, you know, the Sam Windsor or the Paul Marlin um, or the Pat O'Toole or whoever those guys are, they'll, they'll have that experience and they'll remember it. And that's what will be what brings them back. All right, Pete, it's time to look at 2020 for Houston. Let's throw on your uh, general manager's cap, your uh, Matt Truville slash Paul Healy cap as uh, Matty Truville has hung up the boots, so he'll be helping off the field as well. Who are you re-signing? Give me th- I'll give you five. Give me five players that you want to re-sign from 2019 and then give me five positions that you want to strengthen for next year, and I'll, uh, I'll return the favor yeah, after I yeah, listen you know to your expert. Yeah, you know what I love about this, um, Dan, is the – this sounds like it's something that we prearranged that, Hey, we said that we're going to do this. You know, Aaron was like, Hey, let's do this guys, but actually not. 
No, this is completely thrown up to me. So let me uh, let, let me think about this. All right. So so players that um, I would. Well, I, you know, I think these things are going to be connected. So I'm just going to go with the players because I think the players are connected to the positions. So I think Paul Mullen's critical. Like for me as a coach, I always thought about the tight head prop as being one of the first spots. I think Pat O'Toole hooker is also critical. And then you go down the spine of the team, right? So you think about who's going to be number eight. And, you know, I thought Jameson um, Fa'anana uh, Schultz, Fayanana, um, Schultz. Fayana, Fayana Schultz. Yeah, well, no, no, not not the not the fruit. Oh, Fayana tree, not a banana. Thank you, Fayana. Fayana Schultz. Um, Fayana did, Schultz did really well. Um, you know, Matt Trilville yes. played at eight, so eight's going to be a really, really um, critical spot for them. Um, I I agree with you that the um, uh, Arada. Windsor axis is a really good one, but I would be concerned about what was behind that. I think a lot of teams got found out with um, who their backup nine was. And so, you know, I think, and who their backup 10 was. I mean, I think Sam Windsor has been a bit of an Ironman through the first two year, two years of major league rugby, but you want to make sure that you've got someone that can, um, that can cover for him. Of course they've, you know, they've had um, uh, Zach uh, Pangeline in there and, you know, he's a bit of a Swiss Army knife. I mean, he played some nine, he played some ten, he played some fifteen. So you've got someone with the skills to be able to do it. So maybe that's what what they're going to go. And then they need to make some decisions about what they're going to do at fullback. You know, um, Paul Emmerich uh, um, moved Kalenisal there. That was a pretty strong indication that um, that they're going to keep their ball in hand. But that'll be another spot. So. You know, I'm probably always going to talk about, you know, two, three, nine, 10, 15 as the players that, um, and the positions that are going to be critical. Okay. I like it. I'm actually going to agree with you. Mullen and O'Toole, I re-sign. Arada, I re-sign. Windsor at four. And then the decision is, what do you do with a sad clinic? Is he a 13? Is he a 15? Is he a winger? And it all depends on what kind of rugby Paul Healy wants to play in 2020 for that decision. Uh, a name that I've heard around the traps, and this is not confirmed or anything, but I have heard that uh, Dylan Taikato Simpson of the Glendale Raptors is actively shopping himself around, and Houston would be on that short list. And what a pickup that would be to get the fullback from the Raptors down there at the back of that. Sam Windsor, for, uh, in particular, would be very excited to have a player of his caliber to take some of that ball-playing responsibility uh, and kicking responsibility off him as well would definitely add another element uh, to that. So they're the players we want to sign. I've kind of dipped into the ones that we, we would go out into the market for. What are some positions well, you're well, before looking we get there, in the market I, for? If you I, I have a question for you. What would you do with Josh Vithi? He's gone, mate. He's uh, gone to the Pro D2 in France. And well, there you go. Already scored two tries with Columier. <laughs> so whatever well, they're they, doing, they tried to do it at the end. So, so, so then, you know, up. I think that, um, you know, places that that I would uh, secure would be in in the centers. I think they need to. Well, I mean, I think you know, teams that do very well have a dominant lock, and um, you know, with Truville gone, um, you know, they've got um, you know Victor Contact, who, who's a who's a solid player. Um, you know, but they would really need to make sure that that they have a, a dominant lock. Um, you know, they're 
the, a, a, a strong seven, um, and then you know a try scoring wing, um, and you know their their backs they they've always they had a lot of depth I think in their backs so I think their backs are dynamic so I'd probably look at sort of like the back row, um, particularly with the seven and look for you know um, a really physical dominant lock. Yeah, uh, it's it's uncanny. I'm the same way. Midfield, they need to figure out that midfield. It was it's always been a bit of a gamble for the Sabre Cats, that a bit of a rotating yeah. you know, what is like the old saloon barn, the doors that just flying each way all the time. There's always someone different. So they need a real dominant twelve. And and again, it depends on how Paul Healy wants to play, whether you want a big physical ball running twelve, similar to what they had in uh, Threaten Palamo towards the end of this year. Or do you go similar to what his pedigree is with John Connolly and say, you know, I might play a ball-playing 12 there when they had the old um, Stephen Larkin, Matt Giddo early in his career where they were playing almost two tens and playing a little bit more expansive. So center would be my big fix. And then, yeah, loose forward. Front row is pretty solid. I'd go out and get myself a big uh, big threat in the line out at four or five and then get some depth. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if the young Aussie guy, Luke Beauchamp, comes back as well. I thought he did quite well this year with uh, with the opportunities he was given. So whether he slots into that eight position or six, seven around there, another player I, to I, keep I think, an eye I think that, uh, Yeah, and I think that it's going to be Houston really hard to predict year, Houston, people. right? I mean, they were um, two different teams, you know, for the first two-thirds of the – three-quarters of the first season and, and the last quarter. Um and, you know, now they're going to have a different coach. So, you know, all, all things are up in the air. Different coaches these th- see things, see players differently. You know, it's – it's. I, I think that we're going to, you know, after two years of sort of some of, of the same, um, you know, we're, we're probably going to see something very different coming out of Healy. And I think that, um, you know, that's, that's good for Houston. I think there's an opportunity to reset. And, you know, I think we'll see some turnover from those players. Oh, absolutely, and and you know as as a as an international coach too, like the evolution of the game in year three is going to be dramatic. Now, people are worried about the standard and the depth and all that stuff. Forget that. You've got two full seasons of film now that you can watch on opposition players, teams. Just think about the analysis, and you talked about the data. Just think about the data that these teams have now on each other, and what that's going to do to their game, and what two years of full time training is going to do to a player who may have been a fringe player in year one, push their way to some starting minutes in year two, but they're ready to make the leap in year three. And I think a lot of players are going to come out of the woodworks that we may have heard or seen them in and around MLR in the first two years who are going to have a big year this year. So it's uh, definitely exciting. I'm, I, for one, pretty excited to see Houston under Paul Healy. Yeah, I, I think, think that's it's right. A, it's going to be, be uh, one of those teams that's going to be a bit of a mystery team. Like We kind of know what you're going to get out of sort of you know Seattle, um, and, uh, you know, San Diego and, you know, NOLA. Um, but, you know, lots of change, probably with the Arrows as well. But, you know, for most of the other teams, there's a changing coach. A changing coach means a change in philosophy. It means different players, um, you know, different selection approaches. It's going to be uh, it's going to be another interesting. That first month is going to be really interesting for the season um, you know, with some teams from the north on on the road, get, seeing the expansion teams, um, we'll know much more about what's going on when we head into April um, than we will sort of in the February March timeframe. 
Absolutely. Hey, Pete, did you I did uh, see, see Canada, Canada name their squad? Named they their had squad a strong major league rugby flavor. Yeah. Fif- 15. Yes, 15 players from uh, MLR, Litter, Kingsley Jones's roster. And uh, we'll get to see some of those players this weekend as they have their warm up to the, the pre World Cup warm up against the USA. And uh, what do you think of this? What, what's your take on this one early on? What do you first well, as a I think coach, it's both right? coaches? Because what, Canada have made their squad and the game? US hasn't. What are you trying now, to achieve? I can't believe that um, Gary Gold doesn't know his thirty-one. Right? I, I can't believe that's that that's true. Um, you know, my view, uh, having gone through two World Cup cycles and done it differently, like the first time, I made the decisions very late. Because there's always hard decisions. I mean, basically, in a World Cup World Cup squad of 31, um, 25 of them are absolute, like easy to select. Um, there's three or four that you know you make a decision, but that decision's really based around like how you want to play, or you know whether you think they're players or starters. And there's two or three spots where it's actually like a bit of a toss up, and it's it's a really really difficult decision. The the reality is that one extra game doesn't give you enough data or enough new information to make that decision. Like someone plays well or poorly in that game, that isn't going to change your decision. So I think Gary Gold already knows who his 31 is, even if he hasn't announced it. And he may have announced it to the team, um, you know, and the team may know, but he just hasn't announced it publicly. So I think these games are much more about um, looking at who are the starters, um, these are competitions for starting places and they're competitions for the bench. And the way I look at it, and you know, the US has announced their team, the way I look at it is um is you look at getting subunits to play together. This is not the starting lineup for the US. I think there's a couple of places that you can look and say probably not a starting lineup, but it's probably with um, you know, Fry, Talfateo and um Lamo Sitele, I think that that's a good chance of being the starting lineup. Those players haven't played much. They are all European players that had long seasons. Um they didn't play in the PNC. Uh you know, these these are guys that they probably want that front row to play together. But I think in the back row you look at um you know you've got Hermesize, you've got Quill and Dolan, you know, I don't think Hermesize is necessarily the um you know is going to be the starting six uh but i also know he was injured and hasn't played very much and looked a little rusty in the pnc so they might be giving him a game just to give him some of that extra time um you know they've got will mcgee at 10 will's not the 10 right we all know who who aj aj mcginney's 10 nate um osberger at nine I don't think Nate's the starting nine, but I do think he got, he's going because he can play nine and wing, and he's a dynamic player to bring off the bench. Um, nine's one of the most interesting spots, I think. Um, you know, I think Martin Yusefo at wing, I actually have been really impressed with him. It wouldn't surprise me if he's a starter. Um, but then you've got, you know, Mikey Teo now on the bench, just coming back from injury. So, you know, he's a real live wire. So it's interesting. I think that, the um, Lesique Brake center partnership is probably going to be the partnership that 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 is going to play in the center. So you you have a lot. You know you're at the point where you're fine tuning now, and you have a lot of um, like little questions that you're asking, 
you want to give some players some time. So if you call on them at the World Cup, they're not completely lost. Remember that, you know, the US's first game is September 26. And, um, you know, their last game, uh, um, let, let me pull this up. I don't have, you know, their last game is October 13th. So you can imagine that someone who doesn't play in this 23, but let, maybe ends up playing in that last game against Tonga, they wouldn't have played rugby for six weeks. And when you're in that World Cup, you're not going to be doing too much rugby playing, full contact stuff. So some of this is about making sure that it's about fine-tuning the players to go into that World Cup to make sure that they're ready to go. Yeah, i got no problems with Gary waiting until after this game as well. Um, you, don't, you don't pick a team to get on a plane until you know exactly who can get on that plane. So once they get through the 80 minutes on the weekend, I'm pretty sure – I agree with you. I think he's probably got, if he hasn't got 31, he's got 29 names written down on a piece of paper that he knows are going to Japan. And there may be one or two, depending on fitness or, like you said, how they bounce back with Hunko and Mikey. If they're fit and ready to go, then he takes them. If not, you know, he's got someone waiting in the wings to go. But who makes you roster for the World Cup? Let's, I'll just do the absolute opposite of what I just said, and I'll make you pick a team before this game. So, barring injuries on the, the weekend, well, well, um, who's on your plane going to Japan? Well, let me, let me, let me, let me. Don't give me do the that, names that everyone knows because I, I just want to talk a little bit about Canada because I think there was some. We don't have the Canadian. It's interesting that we've got the U.S. starting lineup for the game this weekend, but we don't have the Canadian lineup. Um. But there's a couple of, I think, really interesting selection decisions that, be, that have been made by Kingsley Jones that have Major League Rugby impact. So, so um, one is, you know, Rob Brower not making the squad and Hubert Biden's making the squad. Now, you know, what, eight, nine months ago, I think, Hubert, you know, I think Biden's was out, right? Wasn't really part of the squad. And now he's going to the World Cup. I mean, you know, he's... Um, 37, I think. Um, Brower, who I thought had a great season, um, you know, both loose heads. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, a really, um, really interesting selection. And then the other one that is sort of another interesting selection decision is um, Theo Salda not being selected. Now he's a fullback for um, the Arrows and probably, you know, potentially lost out because they had Gaston Mieres, who had like an amazing season. And, you know, um, Theo Soda didn't play very much. So it's one of those really interesting things where you have a Canadian team in the Arrows, right? The only Major League Rugby team, although there's a lot of Major League Rugby players throughout um, the squad from different teams. And one of their players didn't make it potentially because a non-Canadian player was playing in, in in his position. So lots of interesting stuff. There's a couple of things like I think George Barton, um, you know, the center from the Seawolves probably feels a little bit, uh, um, you know, left out. But I think, you know, they've got some real strong players like, um, you know, Mike Shepard and Kyle Bailey. I mean, those two have just been studs th- this year for um, Major League Rugby. You know, Phil Mack, it's great to see him be able to go, you know, definitely his swans, swan song. Um, you know, he'll be uh, 34 when the World Cup starts and it's a great opportunity for um, for him to go. But in the backs, there's actually quite a few non-professional players, like players that have been part of the Canadian squad or part of the training squad that they have 
um, out in Victoria. They're, they're what's called carded, where they get paid um, by the Canadian Rugby Union. So they're, you know, they get supported, but they haven't been part of any of the professional squads. And I think that's had um, that's been one of the big questions for the Canadian fans is, you know, why do we have these guys that aren't playing professional rugby going to the World Cup? And there are people like George Barton that are playing professional rugby and had a good season with Seattle not going. That's my Canadian input. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And, and just to add on to your uh, Gaston Mures makes the Uruguay squad. If there's any constellation there, probably not. But uh, he ended up making the, the squad for Uruguay. So he'll be going to the World Cup. The, the man who did play fullback for the Toronto Arrows this year. Uh, name that jumped out for me was uh, Jeff Hasler. Uh, what a guy, what a player, and I'm pretty sure there's some outside backs that were probably circling those dates in Japan with Jeff out in the wilderness, yanking on anchors and throwing buoys into the ocean, and next thing you know, he's back at the Sea Wolves, and he just played so well. It was hard to ignore him, especially with his pedigree, and so he makes a squad as well on a on a pretty short professional rugby comeback with uh, I think it was only three or four games with the Sea Wolves. So good to see Jeff there and good to see a, a strong Toronto Arrows influence, which we would expect, but also some players, like you said, from around the MLR as well. He's 37. He Biden's the lumberjack, you know, he just keeps on keeping on. How good is that? What is he, 30? What did you say, 37, 38? <laughs> so you, you can absolutely yeah, imagine. You imagine. 37. I'm 37. I would die. I think, yeah. I think, I would I think I'd go well Brown. in the sushi bar but I don't know about on the rugby field. That'd probably be the limit to my Japanese experience. Back to the USA. They'll be playing Canada this weekend. And their squad will be announced next week, pretty close to the uh, departure date for Tokyo. And like you said, September 26 is their first game. Yeah, but I mean, so I think this, this has been quite players. one of these really interesting discussions. So some halves. of the teams like England have only select two scrum halves. And... The challenge you have, yeah, yeah, with Eddie Jones. The challenge that you have with um, say, thanks a lot, only Eddie Jones. taking two scrum halves is not a is not the the idea that oh Japan's a long way away. How are you going to get a replacement there? The challenge you have with it when you only have two scrum halves is that if someone gets an injury, let's say someone gets a concussion and they're out for a week, but your next game is five days from now. They can't play in that game. If you fly someone out and replace that player, then that player is out of the World Cup. And so the reason why many teams take three scrum halves and three hookers, which is another very technical position, is that they don't want to be in a position where they have to, for a minor injury, like lose their starter for the rest of the World Cup. And so I would take three scrum halves. I, I think that the... Um, the U.S., uh, um, you know, and I think um, Osberger is perfect. Uh, you, you know, you would sit down and talk to him. You would tell him that you, you know, hey, look, you're going to come to the World Cup. Um, you know, we, you know, you're going to be a utility player. We're going to have you play in the back three, and we're going to have you cover nine. Um, you know, the chance of you playing aren't great, but but you know, we, I want to make sure you're okay with that before you before you make that selection. But because you've got a scrum half that can also you know, play international wing. Um, I think that's why you take three scrum halves. So we've got three hookers, three scrum halves. Who have you got at hooker? You've got Hildebrand, 
Corset so. as your backups to uh, Big Joe Tolfetti. I don't think three so. hookers, or is there? There's, there's no, there's no one outside of that that can, can work their way in. Okay, what about the back row? Pete Dahl, Cam Dolan, Nick Savetta sounds like he's going to make it. Sounds from what we're yeah, hearing. Yeah, I mean, that I mean, that's that's one of the things that you can do, right? You can until, um, you know, you midnight can, on the twenty fifth. Yeah, take a player. So. I mean, it's like some of these some of these regulations are really you know difficult to um, to follow, but. But, you know, I, I think the person that loses out if Safeda goes is Brakely. Um, you know, Nate's had a great season for New York, but he's just a little bit undersized to play to play lock. And, and, and um, you know, Nick is so good in the line out. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the back row is going to be really interesting. I think it, it's um, uh, very interesting that um, uh, Al Jabori is listed in the squad for the U.S., um, I'm not sure, you know, he might be a bit of the flyer that you take, certainly someone that, that, that you think can do some, um, you know, significant, um, damage, but having him listed in the squad, um, makes me, you know, interested about whether that's a question mark for Gary or whether he's already in and then, um, in the front row to see Khalifi back, right. This is again, someone that, you know, eight months ago, probably wasn't in the mix, but had a good season and forced his way in. He's someone else that would be um, an, an interesting um, selection. You know, the U.S. has gone from really, you know, struggling at tight head to having a lot of tight heads and not many loose heads. And and Khalifi can definitely play loose heads, so that's why he may end up going. Yeah, I think you circle those three players: Khalifi, Brakley, Aljabori. As you, we talked about twenty nine picked. I think those three may be in and around you know, player 30, player 31 uh, in terms of who can get on there. You know, Khalifi coming back from, uh, I believe he was in a boot for most of the year. I remember talking to him quite a bit out in Seattle and don't want to disclose too much on the injury front, but uh, he's kind of was in a in a struggle against time to get back you know, in time. So I, I know we're probably going to gonna talk and, about the, and have a crack you know, the, here against Canada right at the death to try to squeeze his way onto that plane. Um, a little bit later, but I think – you know, one of the interesting things to me is that the U.S. qualified for America's one and is in the pool of death. And, um, you know, this game against Canada, the U.S. doesn't have to show anything. I mean, if you remember, Dan, when we made our predictions last time, um, you know, I think we were both quite generous to, to Canada and the U.S. really blew them blew them off the park without their best side. Um, you know, not having A.J. McGinty is obviously makes the U.S. a very, very different team. but um, you know, if I'm if I'm Gary Gold and Kingsley Jones, I don't I don't want to show too much here, right? So I might, you know, you might come into this game and you might have some um, outcomes that you're looking to get to, where you might say, you know what, we're really going to like work on our kick chase, so we're going to kick a little bit more than we normally would, or you know, we're really going to work on our counter attack. So you know, when the ball's kicked to us, we're not going to kick it back. I mean, I think there's there's there'll be tactical and strategic messages and um approaches that the teams will take going into this because they want to work on something not because they really care about winning the game or not although i think from the player's perspective that's always important but because this is really a a, a prep game i mean i think canada's been interesting because they've had um, a couple of sort of very warm-up games right so they play the bc all-stars they played um a leinster team mainly made up of second team players but that's given them i think a lot of chance to be able to work on stuff 
um, you know, after the PNC for the for the US. This is a you know, um, I'm sure they've been doing some some good work in terms of, of training, but um, you know, it, they'll they'll probably come into this maybe a little bit rustier than the Canadians. But again, not really so concerned about that because they'll be working on some parts of the game that they think is going to be important. No, I agree with you, Pete. Those two little hitouts for Canada will probably put them in a bit of uh, a different mindset. They'll be in a little bit better shape. We haven't played the USA since APC. so. But I also think that changes tactically what Kingsley Jones want doing. He knows his squad. He's got his players picked, and he's going to want to focus on winning games at the World Cup and what's the best way to do that. So the result of this game is really, you know, it's a non-event for both sides. But what they're looking to do, I think there's more to prove perhaps on the USA side with that squad not selected yet and potentially a few fringe players still trying to make the team. But game is on this weekend. It's up in uh, Vancouver at BC Play Stadium. So uh, do your best if you're up in Vancouver. Get a ticket, get out there. Yeah, and, uh, it's always, it's always good, good to connect. Thanks to, to um, Pete, you guys both for up, your um, show flexibility in, Job well in, done. in pulling together the schedule. But, um, you know, it, it, excited to continue to see news about Major League Rugby come out. And uh, all of those that listen, um, please, uh, you know, rate us on iTunes or um, Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts um, and uh, leave a review. That helps people find us and uh, um, helps us grow the Major League Rugby base. <laughs> it's a, you know, a one-eyed man is king in a blind world. That's how it works. On well the said, Pete. You are the uh, IT guru of the group. We... I love it. And the cliches to end as well. Well, for Pete Steinberg, Aaron Castro, I'm Dan Power. Next time, we will get into the Glendale Raptors. Till then, folks, we'll talk to you next time. Have a great one.